This is the user experience Gandurg Radio. Thanks for listening. selection before the selection. Now the most obvious example of this is what we in America call the primary. The primary is where we select who we may select to run our government. The primary in America this year has given us Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. The primary is the process by which we have the ability to decide who we get to decide among. That is the problem I want to talk about here. I want to talk about it here because I think it is radically under-theorized, but a critical part, I think the most important part in understanding how democracy has been defeated and how democracy could be revived. Now, why is this important? To describe. I think we have to start by recognizing something which I think most of us already feel, that this is a deeply scary time for democracy around the world. That fear gets expressed in many different forms. In Britain, it gets expressed in this form, inspired by a person like this in the United States, expressed by maybe Donald Trump or maybe uh, Bernie Sanders, people are fearful of him, they were fearful of her, but it's none of those things that scare me. What scares me is the skepticism that has begun to rise around the world, especially among the elites, skepticism about democracy itself. Places like, what's wrong with the people? Or, how could they be so stupid? What scares me is the elite sneer at this populist moment 
in democracies around the world. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not a populist. As a Harvard Law professor, I make the elite for a living. But I think that this response to this populist movement is obtuse and oblivious, and it misses a critical flaw at the core of democracy today. So to describe that critical flaw, I'm going to offer you three ideas, obscurely titled right now. Let me start by saying, first an idea against what I will call tweetism. <laughs> Secondly, an argument for the few, and third, an argument against the many. These three ideas are offered to show what we can think of as the structure of the flaw in democracy today, to locate its place and to show how the cure for that flaw suggests a change much more radical than how we typically think of what democracy needs today. So, let's start with this first idea against tweetism. I'm going to give you some examples of the problem with what I've described as the selection before the selection. Two examples should be completely uncontroversial, and in most of the world, I think all three of the examples will be completely uncontroversial. Just in the United States is the third still controversial. So here's the first. If we started from this beautiful place and traveled some 8,700 kilometers west, southwest, we would end up in the town of El Paso, Texas. And if you could climb into a time machine and go back about 100 years to old El Paso, Texas, we might be lucky to meet this man, a man named Dr. Lawrence Nixon. Dr. Nixon traveled to El Paso in 1910 to begin his practice. And between 1910 and 1922, Dr. Nixon walked to his polling place. He paid his polling tax, and then he voted. But in 1924, when he went to his polling place, he was told by the polling workers, uh, you know, Dr. Nixon, you're not permitted to vote. And Nixon said, I know you can't, but I've got to try. And the reason Nixon could not vote was that in 1923, Texas had passed a law. A law that said that in the Democratic primary, and in Texas in 1920, the only party was the Democratic Party. That primary had to be an all-white primary. Only whites were permitted to vote. So the state of Texas had created two-stage elections to become candidate and then an elected member of the government. The first stage was a white primary where only whites could vote. The second stage was a general election where anyone could vote. To run in that general election, you had to do well in the white primary. Two stages with an obvious filter within the middle of the stages. 16% of the population excluded from this critical first step with the consequence, obviously, of producing a democracy responsive to whites only. Because of how the selection before the selection was made. 
Here's a second example. If you started from this beautiful place, you traveled about 8,700 miles east, you would end up in the place of Hong Kong. Hong Kong, which about a year and a half ago faced an extraordinary set of protests. Protests that were triggered by a law. A law that was established to determine how the chief executive, the governor of Hong Kong, would be selected. And as the law was described, quote, the ultimate aim is the selection of the chief executive by universal suffrage upon nomination by a broadly representative nominating committee in accordance with democratic procedures. Nomination by a nominating committee. Now that committee was to be composed of about 1,200 citizens, which means that of a population of 7 million, is about 0.02% of Hong Kong. Now 0.02% is a very small number, as you can see, barely visible up there on the screen. If you imagine 0.02% out of the whole population of Hong Kong, it would look something like this, this tiny corner capturing the number who were permitted to select the candidates who Hong Kong got to vote among. 0.02% of the nominating committee, and to run in the election, you had to do well in that nominating committee. And the concern of the protesters was that this filter would be biased. As they described, quote, that 0.02% would be dominated by a pro-Beijing business and political elites, not an all-white primary, we could say an all-red primary with the consequence, obviously, of producing a democracy responsive to China only, because of how the selection before the selection was to be made. Okay, I think around the world those two examples are pretty uncontroversial. Only in America is this next example controversial. Because in America, we take it for granted that campaigns will be privately funded. But of course, funding a campaign, raising the money to pay for the campaigns is its own contents. We could say it's its own primary. It takes time. Members of Congress and candidates for Congress spend anywhere between 30 and 70% of their time dialing for dollars. I don't know if you recognize this as a telephone, this thing that dials like that. 30 to 70% calling people from around the country to raise the money that they need to fund their campaign. B.F. Skinner gave us this image of the Skinner box, where any stupid animal could learn which buttons it needed to push to get the sustenance it needed to survive. This is a picture of the modern American congressperson. As the modern American congressperson learns which buttons he or she must push to get the money, the sustenance that his or her campaign needs to survive. This life has an effect on members of Congress. They develop a sixth sense, a constant awareness about how what they do might affect their ability to raise money. They become, in the words of the X-Files, shape-shifters, as they constantly adjust their views in light of what they know will help them to raise money. Not on issues 1 to 10, but on issues 11 to 1,000. Wesley Byrne, the Democrat from Virginia, describes that when she went to Congress, she was told by a colleague, quote, always lead to the green and to clarify, she went on, you know, he was not an environmentalist. <laughs> this is the selection before the selection. This is a primary. It's the money primary. 
not a white primary, but a green primary. This greenback primary, where the funders select the candidates who get to run, raise the obvious question, who are these funders? Because to run in the general election, you have to do very well with them, the funders of the campaign. What we think about the funders, there's a lot of attention focused on the biggest funders, people who give the most, and they give a lot to campaigns in American politics. The top 100 in 2014 gave as much as the bottom 4.75 million contributors to congressional campaigns. And in this presidential election cycle, the top 158 families gave as much as nearly half of all the money that was contributed early in the presidential election cycle. Same for super PACs. The top Half of that money comes from just 50 donors in the contributions to super PACs in America. Those are the biggest funders. But I think it's much more important to focus not on these biggest funders, but on the relevant funders. People who give not the most, but who give enough to matter, whose contribution is big enough to matter, as a member of Congress or a candidate for Congress is dialing for dollars to raise the money he or she needs to get the money for his or her campaigns. People will give enough so that then when the candidate is calling him or her, he or she is thinking, what does this person care about? So what does that mean? How much do you have to give to be a relevant funder? Well, it's an arbitrary number. Let's be a little bit conservative. Let's think the number $5,200, which is the maximum amount you can give to one candidate in any election year, in the primary and the general election, together in 2012. So if we imagine people give $5,200, most people in Washington would say that's not enough money to matter, but let's say that is enough money to matter. Let's say that relatively low amount is enough to matter. In 2012, it turns out there were 57,874 Americans who gave that amount of money or more. 57,874. Which, for those of you doing the math, you'll know that is about 0.02% of America. 0.02% of America giving this tiny, this tiny fraction, giving the amounts necessary to make themselves relevant funders in the funding of campaigns to get members of Congress elected. This tiny fraction of the 1%, we could say a Chinese fraction of the 1% dominating this first stage with the consequence, obviously, of producing a democracy responsive to these funders only. There's a Princeton study, which is a Harvard professor I'd like to ignore a little bit, was put off the stage by Martin Gillens and Ben Page. The largest empirical study of actual decisions by our government in the history of political science relating those decisions to the attitudes of the economic elites, the attitudes of organized interest groups, and the attitudes of the average voter. And what they find is quite startling. So with the economic elite, the relationship is as you would expect. As the percentage of the economic elite who support a policy goes up, the probability of that policy being enacted goes up as well. 
Same thing for organized interest groups. As the number of organized interest groups supporting a policy goes up, the probability of that policy being enacted goes up as well. That's the way a democracy is supposed to work, one would think. The more we support something, the more likely it is it will be enacted. Here's the graph for the average citizen's preference. It is a flat line, both figuratively and literally. What this is saying is it doesn't matter the percentage of average voters who support something. From 0% to 100%, it has no effect on the probability of that policy being enacted, as I described it in English, on the preferences of the economic elites and the stands of organized interest groups are controlled for. The preferences of the average American appear to have only a minuscule, near zero, statistically non-significant impact on public policy. In a democracy, the average citizen's views don't matter. Right? Here's the picture of democracy as it was told by the end of middle America, right there in the second and we, the citizens, we're supposed to be driving the bus. But here's the reality of American democracy today. The steering wheel has become removed from the bus. It's no longer the case that we are driving the bus. We have no relation between our attitudes and what the bus does because of how the selection before the selection is made. In all three cases, it's the same corrupt dynamic. In the selection before the selection, in all three cases, it corrupts the idea of democracy. And I want to give this form of corruption a name. I want to call it Tweedism. And I'm inspired by that name by maybe the greatest American political philosopher of the 19th century, a man named Boss Tweed. Now, Boss Tweed was a criminal who led a political organization in New York called Tammany Hall. And Boss Tweed was maybe the most effective political boss in all of America, certainly in the East Coast. And what Boss Tweed used to say is, quote, I don't care who does the electing, as long as I get to do the nominating, the nominating. Because as Boss Tweed recognized, <laughs> it is in the nominating that he gets control over who and how the government gets executed. In the nominating switch, where the Tweeds vote, the power is established to control how the elected will happen because in this Tweeds stage, an unrepresentative few exercise the control over how the democracy develops with the consequence, obviously, of producing a system responsive to the tweeds only. That's tweedism. Defined. A noun. A flaw in the selection before the selection of a democracy. Okay, that's idea one. Second idea here is for the few. An argument for the few. Because what is the solution to the problem I've described here? If the problem is an unrepresentative few in the first stage, of selecting a government. The solution is at least to move from an unrepresentative few to a representative few. In the context of the Texas primary, don't filter on race. In the context of Hong Kong's democracy, don't filter on an elite. On America's democracy, don't filter on money. In each of these cases, don't filter on what is irrelevant. Instead, make the few in this process 
representative. Because if the few were representative, as we know they could be, think about polls, which take a very small number of the population of Gallup each, when it does its national surveys, does no more than a thousand to give results that are within 4% of accuracy, a small but representative few, if the few were representative, then the selection before the selection could be okay. So at a minimum, what we have to do is to find a way to make this unrepresentative few representative. But why the few? Why an unrepresentative few becoming a representative few? Why stop there? Why not say, we want not just an unrepresentative few, but a representative few, and not just an unrepresentative few, a representative many? Why not a democracy that tries to include all of us and follow what all of us say? Why isn't that the objective? And the truth is, to most who think about democratic theory, that is the objective. Most have a built-in assumption that what we want is a democracy that asks of all of us what do we all want, and then responds to what we say we all want. And that idea, in this third part, I want to argue against. I want to argue against the idea that what we should be aspiring to is a democracy that responds directly to the many. But to get to that little counterintuitive arguments, engagements of history, some American history. Because there's an interesting relationship between democracy and the people which is often obscured from a modern perspective. In the beginning of the American Republic, there was elite rule in America. That was the ideal that the elite would rule. People like the founders. The people would elect the elites, the idea was, they would figure out who were the best people to rule, but then the elite would be free to govern. Now that ideal, very quickly, was not the reality. Very quickly, the elites were replaced by political parties. Because it turned out the people did not elect the elite. It turned out that who was elected was not anybody anybody had much respect for. And so very quickly in America's democracy, we had the rise of democratic political parties and the shift of policy making from an elite to these party leaders, sometimes party bosses, people like, for example, Boss Tweed. And that shift very quickly, in the history of American democracy, produced a kind of corruption, a corruption that is endemic of what we refer to as the Gilded Age, the period where this image became an icon for the way government works, government responding, responding not to ideas, but to influence of money, money which exercised its force not just in the marketplace, but in the political space as well. And that corruption, that inspired the progressive movement, progressives of the progressive era who had as their aim to displace the parties, to displace the party bosses, and to put the people at the center of the government, to remove representative democracy, to replace it with direct 
democracy. A democracy responsive to the people directly. Now this was an idea that at the founding of the American Republic would have been unthinkable. There was technically no way to imagine making a democracy responsive to the people directly because there was no way to understand what the people directly would want. But amazingly, by the turn of the 20th century, technology had begun to enable this idea of direct democracy. The rise of opinion polls was a technology that made it possible for people to believe they understood what the people directly wanted. The rise of broadcasting, or modes of mass distribution of content, produced a culture that was obediently watching and listening to what leaders would say. We watched. We listened. And through that process, that incredible concentration of broadcasting power, we knew something. What we knew made democracy possible. Now, who are the we? By the we here, I mean literally most of us. In 1969, Spiro Agnew could write, at least 40 million Americans every night watch network news. According to Harris Polls and other studies, for millions of Americans, the networks are the sole source of national and world news. Three networks were the dominant source for news. Even in 1977, 90% of the consumption of news came from these three networks. So what that means is that technology enabled a classroom for democracy where Americans understood a story, no doubt a narrow and obscured and biased story, but a story that was explained to them by a relatively few number of speakers that told them the problems their democracy had to address and ideas for how to address it. The idea of direct democracy was made possible by that technology. And though it failed and though it was imperfect, it really was an extraordinary moment in the history, the history of the evolution of democratic culture. And so what this history meant was a time when the people were presumptively sovereign, when the notion became that what the government should do is what the people said, and the people were presumptively sovereign directly. And that they presumptively knew something, not perfect, they didn't know enough, they didn't know a lot of things well at all, but there was a knowledge, a common knowledge, that they had collectively, enabled by the technology. Again, not perfect, but not senseless. It was a time when the technology made a certain kind of direct democracy possible. Okay, but here's the problem we face today. That technology has changed dramatically. All across the world, it has changed dramatically. The age of broadcasting is dead. The age when we can presume that a population is exposed to the same ideas universally is over. In America, the graph that goes down represents the percentage of the population watching the same network news. The graph that's going up, the number of different outlets for news programs, there are now more than 340 national cable news programs compared to three in 1977. It's a radical fragmentation of the source of information that Americans now get for 
their news about their democracy, as one author puts it, the increasing segmentation of audiences denies nation-states a means with which to promote social integration and a sense of common purpose. What this means is that there's no common story, no common account, no common basis for the people to govern. But in this extraordinary history, we be divided between centralized and decentralized distribution of information. Decentralized distribution was essentially the model for the whole of human history except the 20th century. But the 21st century will be like the rest of history where the technology enables extraordinary decentralization of the distribution of knowledge, which means no common story which all of us share to evaluate and to respond in a democratic manner. Now, why does this matter now when it didn't matter so much for all of history? The reason it matters now is that now the presumption is that the people matter now. The views of the people matter now. That democracy is supposed to respond to all of us now, yet now, in the 21st century and from now forward, we don't have the basis for knowledge to make that response sensible. We are more relevant than ever in the history of self-government, more relevant, the attitude of ordinary people, just when, in a very precise sense of the term, we are more ignorant than ever. Now, precise sense of the term ignorant. Ignorant does not mean stupid. Ignorant is describing what we know. It's not describing what we could know. And the difference is important, because ignorance is curable. If somebody doesn't know something, you can explain it to them. Stupidity is not curable. You can explain as much as you want, and they will never understand what you are explaining. But we can explain the ideas necessary to make democracy work. We can explain it, I think, to any set of ordinary Americans, not for all issues always, but for some issues, for some people sometimes. And that's the point I want to leverage, some, or what I call before the few. It is possible for democracy to be sensible when what it aims for is educating the right selection of the few and having their views matter. So here's an example of a technology for doing that. Jim Fishkin, Center for Deliberative Democracy at Stanford, has what he calls deliberative polls. What are deliberative polls? Deliberative polls are polls that take random representative samples of people, 300, 500 people, bring them together, inform them, give them balanced information about an issue, give them an opportunity to deliberate about that issue, which they've done from almost now 100 of these polls, everything from electricity policy in Texas to whether the monarch should be retained in Australia. <laughs> With the information and the opportunity to deliberate, 
and then producing results based on the shift in attitudes from the beginning of the process to the end. And what these consistently find is that these average, randomly selected representative bodies of ordinary citizens produce same smart and stable attitudes that are among the best expressions of democratic values possible within the context of current commitment to populist control. And the argument that examples and experiments like that lead me to is that we have to find a way to give up the idea that our objective at any moment should be to figure out what the many want and embrace the idea that a few, a representative few, may speak, may more effectively speak for the ideas of democracy than an uninformed many. So here's a particular example of how this has been implemented. You might have heard of the incredible story that just happened within Iceland. Iceland where the elves are, and the elves put their gold at the end of the rainbow. Um, in 2008, after the economic collapse in Iceland and around the world, there was an extraordinary protest in Iceland, the pots and pans protest, where an incredible percentage, even higher than Hong Kong, of Iceland showed up to protest the government because the perception was the government was directly implicated in the corruption that led to the financial collapse. But what's less reported, less understood, is how that protest led to an incredible crowdsourced constitution. A process to produce a new constitution for Iceland, which was different from the process that's been employed anywhere in the world in the history of democratic processes. The first stage of that process was to gather a thousand people from the population of uh, Iceland, of 300,000 Icelanders, randomly selected to bring them together for a period where they could identify the values that they thought their constitution should embody. So like a deliberative poll, an opportunity to argue and debate and come up with ideas, but sanctioned by the fact that the people who were there were people who were literally, technically representative of the whole population of Iceland. And after these ideas, these values were identified, then 525 people ran to serve on the commission that would draft the Constitution. 25 were elected from that process. And those 25, after four months of drafting, came up with a Constitution. Now, our Constitution was written in four months, too, but unlike our Constitution, the drafts of the Icelander Constitution were posted to Facebook every week as the process went on, and there was ongoing feedback to the process from people around the world which produced, in my view, an elegant, beautiful, small, short constitution which expresses the values identified in the referendum process um, in a beautifully precise way. And then that document, that constitution, was ratified by two-thirds of the public in Iceland through a national referendum. The most extraordinary citizen-drafted constitution ever in the history of constitutions. And then it was up to Parliament to adopt the Constitution or not, and though two-thirds of the public of Iceland had voted in favor of the Constitution, the Parliament blocked it. 
more things change, the more they stay the same. The parliament blocked it. But regardless of parliament, the key here is that this process gave up the idea of allness, that all, at any moment, were relevant to understanding what was a democratic expression of values in Iceland. It embraced the idea of democratic representativeness through what the Greeks or the Athenians um, describe or would be described as a process of sortition. Sortition. Or by sortition, we mean simply the selection through lots, lottery, of those who are enabled to make judgments that are representative of the people as a whole. It's my view that we need to find a way to try these ideas of sortition, of representative samples, of the few speaking, everywhere. We need to experiment, we need to learn, we need to test this process to identify and ask the question whether it's better, more trusted, less corrupt than the process of representative democracies that we've seen develop around the world. To develop the idea that citizen juries can function as much better representatives in the true sense of representativeness than the corrupted processes of democracies that we've seen develop over the past couple hundred years. Okay. I said three ideas. First against tweetism. That's how they have the current structures of representative democracy. Second, an argument for the few. How we could have a process of representativeness to give us the opportunity to identify the values and the positions that best represent the positions of the public well considered. And against the idea of the many, the argument that for the many, a system that relies on a few informed representative few may be a better democratic process, one that better captures what we would think were we in the position to understand what's necessary for such a country. A basis in this process that Athens first gave us in some form perfected with the technique the technologies that we have for identifying representativeness to save, in this sense, democracy, because saving is what democracy needs right now. We are in a 1930s moment all over again. Where smart, powerful people everywhere have come to doubt democracy, have come to doubt that we, the people, actually speak in an intelligent way and in a way that will guide governments towards intelligent policies. And we could say with good reason, we doubt. We need the democracy to inspire the best of us. We need a process by which you could inspire the best of us. Not us the ignorant, but us the informed and reflective. And my view is we've begun to see experiments that show us that it could. We should hack our democracies, our processes, our experiments to make this change happen. Thank you very much.
over to you. Okay, thank you, Professor. That was a very thought-provoking presentation. I actually have two questions. First, the problem that you addressed of the funding of parties or primaries, the candidates. Um, hasn't the example of Sanders showed us that it's also the ordinary people that can fund a candidate that might be successful in the end? And second, the selection before the selection. Don't you face the same problem with your idea? Because there are some people have to be selected as well. How do you select them? Thank you. So Bernie Sanders has demonstrated, I think, quite effectively that a presidential campaign, a presidential campaign, can go an extraordinary distance, rely on ordinary contributions alone. Of course, he didn't win. And one of the reasons he didn't win is that he didn't have, I think, an extraordinary amount of large contributions to back end and super PACs the way Hillary Clinton did. But he has demonstrated that's completely feasible. But the critical point to recognize is that America is not a dictatorship. The president does not set policy in America. There is an institution that was to be the most important democratic institution in our government called Congress. And what I'm complaining about primarily is Congress. It's Congress that spends the insane amount of time that it does raising money. And it's that process that has to change if it's ever going to be a really representative body. And more than just that, I mean, we could go on for another three hours about all the ways in which Congress fails as a representative body. But even if Sanders shows us for the presidency, nothing more than small contributions is necessary, nobody believes that Congress could elect itself in the same way. And so that's the critical change that I'd be, be pushing for. And then the question about how do we make the initial selection? Well, I've run together two different ideas, and, and I'm going to separate them to make this as easy as possible. All I'm talking about when I'm talking about experiments right now uh, is talking about processes for producing views, attitudes of what the people believe should happen for a particular policy judgment. Um, you know, should the Constitution of America, American Constitution, be amended to have a balanced budget amendment or public funding election? Should that happen? What I'd like to see is processes for eliciting America's judgment on that through something like deliberative polls or some other process like that. I'm not yet saying we should just be electing people through just this process alone. Although, I, I would tell you, I would love to see a couple states experiment with the idea of a random selection of their population being pulled together for the purpose of at least nominating the representatives who could run in the election. I mean, if Hong Kong had adopted a deliberative poll for selecting the candidates who got to run for governor, none of the criticisms that I am making would apply. Because if it really were a representative process, if it really were a randomly selected representative group that was making the judgment of who should the candidates be, that would be representative enhancing, it wouldn't be destructive tweetism the way I described it. all I'm pushing for, the only experiment I want is better ways to elicit the judgment of the people so that the judgment of the people is not summarized in statements like, my God, 40% of America has supported Donald Trump. I mean, that is a terrifying statement of terrifying truth. But I think it, it undersells the capacity of the people if the people were in the proper Next question. Hello, to be short. Um, I don't see. Uh, I mean, it's not about. It's not about 
selecting the people who run, because then even if you select the people who run, they still need the money for the campaign, so I don't see how this solves the problem. And then second quick question, democracy is also about values, and there is not a question of being fully informed. People have different ideas, and we don't know which one is right and which one is wrong. And people coming from my exact same social background would be, would be representative of me, according to Paul, uh, may have completely different ideas on how to deal with migrants or with gay marriages. Yeah, so with respect to the first one, um, absolutely right. Uh, um, I, I absolutely believe that you've got to neutralize the distorting effect in the election process by, I think, public funding of American elections the way, you know, Germany obviously, as a constitutional matter, has driven this principle deep into your democracy. We seem to have a constitution that almost makes it illegal to have this kind of neutralization of the effect of money inside of a political process. So again, what I'm emphasizing about the changes on that half, what I was calling the tweetism half, would be solved primarily through the public funding of elections. With respect to the second, you're absolutely right that the most important problem for democracy is to figure out how to get people with different values to work and live together. And the problem with the current system in America, I only speak of America, is that whenever there's a difference, people immediately attribute it to some illegitimate justification. So if your congressperson votes in a way you don't believe he or she should vote, you think it's because of the money. You think because this is an illegitimate process that they come out with the illegitimate results. If we could neutralize that and get back to the hard process of democracy, which is to say, I have views different from you, but we have to live together. We have to work together. And working together is about committing to the project of compromise that a democracy embeds. If we can neutralize the parts of that that make it seem illegitimate, then the hopefulness of democracy, I think, returns. One of the most interesting features of the Iceland process of drafting the Constitution is they took no votes during the process of drafting the Constitution. Everything had to be by consensus. Now, the 25 people elected were very different people. Just a couple of lawyers, there were a whole bunch of um, ordinary like, people who didn't, uh, older, younger, all sorts of different people, but they didn't vote. They forced themselves to come to consensus. And that commitment is the basic commitment of democracy, that you learn to live and work with people who are different from you. And all I'm describing is what we need to do to make that incredible experiment possible again. Because right now, at least again in my country, there is no hope of empathy or understanding of difference because we attribute difference to motives that are unrelated to true differences in values, and those differences I think have to be understood and respected, and we have to work to find a way to live, work through them as a, as a, as a nation and as a democracy. I want to find a way to make that happen. We have time for a From India, I former UN Secretary General Shashi Tarun. Thank you. Perhaps more relevant than a member of Parliament in India, and that's why I'd like to uh, thank you for this just very interesting talk, but also ask you to think for a minute about how your analysis might apply when there are differences of scale or there's a different system. So, scale, the 1,000 people in Iceland represented 0.33% of the entire population. Now, you take a percentage like that to 100, you know, 1.2 billion Indians, 
and you end up with three million people right there not going to get a representative of the functioning. So scale becomes a challenge. And then it comes a system, we look at the parliamentary system, not a presidential. So what we do essentially is the selection before the selection is done by party leaders. So the party and each party has varying degrees of level of democracy in its assessment process will essentially pick the person whom then the electorate gets to choose to vote for against people similarly chosen by other parties. Is that a better system? Does that meet some of your desires already? Yeah. Because the, the more direct sort of democracy through random selection falls, it seems to me, at the head of state. Yeah. So with respect to the first point, again, look, in the United States right now, policy judgments are made by governments driven by public opinion polls. Public opinion polls, which are surveys, if we're lucky, of a thousand people out of 300 million people in the United States. Uh, and the reason why public opinion polls believe that they can survey just a thousand people is because statistics tell, statistics tell us that if the process of selection is truly representative and, and random, there's no reason to believe that the judgment of that thousand people deviates from a perfect judgment of what everybody gathered together might you know, begin to believe. So, uh, there's no scale issue here. What Iceland did with a thousand, the United States could do with a thousand too. I would like to see more than a thousand, just to, because the robustness of the um, subsets that you can begin to speak about go up the larger the sample is. But what I'm saying in there, and what Jim Fishkin does when he does deliberative polls, is he makes sure the number of people gathered together is appropriately large given the statistics to make a judgment that is informative um, of the question that's being asked. So that's with respect to the first. With respect to the second, when we started party selection in the United States, it was the same idea. The idea was the parties would select the candidates. When the view grew that the parties were captured by money during the Gilded Age, then they said, we'll have a primary so the people could select the candidates. Um, and if people believe that the people selecting the candidates, the selection of the candidates, is, is, a, is a legitimate process, not a corrupted process, corrupted by money or corrupted by the white primary, what it is, whatever it is, there's no reason to say that that's uh, illegitimate merely because the selection is made by a subset of the whole population. That's why I wasn't saying we should eliminate all primaries. What I was saying is we should eliminate illegitimate discriminations within the primaries. And in America, the most illegitimate discrimination today is discrimination on the basis of money. You know, we all see how the white primary is illegitimate discrimination, but the white primary excluded 16% of America. The green primary excludes 99.95% of America. So 99.95% of America is rendered second-class citizens in the critical first step of selecting an American government. That is completely contrary to the ideals of what a democracy should be. And if a party system were closer to being represented, that, you know, I have no objection to small groups selecting the candidates. I only have an objection to illegitimate filters in that process, which the American democracy plainly, I think, demonstrates. At least outside of America, is plain. Inside of America, there's still people who utter the words free speech as a way to defend the system, which I just don't even understand anymore. But still, um, I think we, we can see why that filter is uh, anti-democratic filter on the word process. Time flies. Thank you.
This is the user experience Hamburg Radio. Thanks for listening. Visit de uxhh-radio.blogspot.de for more live recordings.